We are teaching through Philippians. Actually, no, we're teaching through the life of Paul and we've hit Philippians. So this class will teach through Philippians. The way we've sort of designed this class on Paul is let's teach through his history in a chronological fashion. Then we'll go back through and teach through his theology and some particular ways he saw the world and understood God. And so we're in the let's teach through his life. And in the process of that, we're at the point today where he wrote a letter to the church at Philippi. Uh, As I was getting ready for the lesson and thinking about my introduction to it, I was thinking about our children. We've got five wonderful children. We've got uh, Rebecca and Sarah who are here this morning. They cut class to come to this one. Um, There's a better shot of Sarah there in the middle looking at her food, wondering if she's really going to eat it. Um... We've got uh, a son who's in graduate school over in England, and uh, uh, he's uh, not pictured today because uh, I didn't have a picture of him on this computer. We have two wonderful daughters who are students at Pepperdine, Gracie and Rachel. And the wild part is, as I know, Scripture teaches that children are a gift from the Lord. It's like Pastor Fleming said this morning, everything is the Lord's, the whole earth and all that's in it. That includes their children. And the children that Becky and I have are children that have been given to us not as permanent custody. But there's something that God said, here I entrust you with these souls. Train them and rear them right. And that's our responsibility as parents. There's no more tremendous responsibility that I've had in my life than that responsibility. And I always grew up with the idea, I wonder if in this world I will get to do something significant. And the answer for us is yes, because we've been given children. And there's nothing more significant we could do than love and teach those children. Now, somewhere over time as these kids have grown up, even though mentally we understand they're gods and that we're temporary custodians, if you will. Somewhere mentally, that realization has kind of gotten shuffled out the door. And we've come attached to these as if they're our own. And then, after you've handled them as infants and you've changed their diapers and you've seen them, had them throw up on you and You've potty trained them and you've taken them to that first day of school. And you've helped them through the anxieties of growing up. Something happens. They leave. (laughs) Mike and Debbie Riddle are over here holding a grandbaby. It's as if you're lucky. Nah, it's not that, Mike. It's not that. I mean, you're right. It's the normal course of events, and that's the way it should be. But when they leave, it's it's hard. And it rips at you. Because they were part of your heart, and they still are, but they're an absent part. And I'm so thankful to the Lord that I have uh, a blackberry. Oh, because I get text messages from my kids from even England 
And I can send them emails and text messages back. I can get phone calls. I can find out how they're doing. And I can talk to them and tell them what's going on in our world. And I still feel plugged in. Paul viewed his churches and the disciples that through the grace of God he had as his children. And he calls them that. And Paul reached that tough predicament where he wasn't able to be with those children always, but time and distance separated as the children grew up. And Paul didn't have a Blackberry. And he didn't have a cell phone or a landline. He didn't have a fax machine. He didn't have a Facebook page he could register on. Paul had to suffice with word of mouth and writing letters. But even the letter writing was a bit difficult because there wasn't a regular postal system. The Romans had a postal system that was to be used only for government and military. The commoners did not have a postal system. So you'd have people take your letters. You'd just have to find someone and trust them to get it there. Letter writing itself was an art at the time. It's something that was actually taught we go to universities, we go to colleges, we go to high schools, we go to junior high, middle schools, and we take courses. The scribes of Paul's day took a course in how to write letters. And we actually have today still two manuals that were used, textbooks, if you will, of letter writing in the day. And they divided up the different kinds of letters that were written. Paul's letter, most scholars classify as what would be called a friendship letter. A friendship letter had a number of different parts, but three particular that we see Paul using in the letter to Philippians. There was a mention of the fact that we've been separated as friends, even though our hearts are together, distance and time has separated us. There's a mention of the fact that the writer, Paul in our case, is concerned over the affairs of the person. And then a third element is there's a thank you because usually there's help, not only involved, but help prospectively going forth. And Paul has all of those elements here. It's a phone call or a letter, if you will, that says, hey, I miss you. Let me tell you what's going on with me. And I'm concerned about what I hear is going on with you. Thank you for being plugged into my life. Please don't stop. And I want to continue being plugged into yours. And that was the form or the etiquette that a friendship letter should take. And that's the form that Paul's letter takes here, though with a little extra juice. So that's what we're going to look at in Paul's writing to the Philippians. It plugs into the history we've been giving with Paul being in prison in Rome. Now, by being imprisoned, he wasn't stuck inside a prison itself. He had a house that was rented. But he was shackled and he was under the, the oversight of a Roman guard that, if it was business as usual, would change every four hours. And so Paul is, is shackled, but he's able to preach and he's able to teach. While Paul is in this prison which Luke says lasted at least two years, Paul writes four letters. He writes these letters first to the church at Ephesus. I say first. 
We don't know which order they came in. I can tell you this. Three of the letters probably went out by the same fella who delivered them. And a fourth letter probably went out by someone else. Epaphroditus. The three that probably went out by the same, so we'll group them together and deal with them one at a time, is the letter to the church at Ephesus, which we'd call Ephesians. The letter to the church at Colossae, which we call... Yeah, it's a gimme. The letter to Philemon, which we call... Oh, y'all are brilliant. And the letter to the church at Philippi, which we call Philippians. And that's what we're going to look at today. To do it, I want to remind you a little bit of the background of Philippians. Philippi, the little flashing red dot you see on the screen, was a town in Macedonia that Paul evangelized in his first missionary trip that crossed over into Europe, which would be his second missionary trip. But the very first one where he went to Europe, this is one of the first places he went and evangelized. And we read about it. It was a, or we talked about it in the class, it was a major Roman town. Uh, it was a town where several significant battles had been fought in the Roman annals of history after Brutus and Cassius had killed Julius Caesar and they fled because they weren't able to take the government. And Mark Antony goes after him. Uh, the big decisive battle was fought here outside uh, Philippi in the plains of Philippi. Uh, Caesar Augustus uh, came and whipped Mark Antony after that. Same place right here. This was a huge Roman town. And I say that because there were not a lot of Jews there. In fact, if you remember Paul's conversions account, Paul normally would go to a town and go to the synagogue. But in Philippi, when Paul went, he went down by the river where he found Lydia dying clothes. Remember that? Uh, Or Lydia the clothes dyer, I should say. And Lydia was having a prayer session down by the river. And the indication is there were not enough Jews there to form a synagogue. You had to have 10 Jewish men of age to have a synagogue. So there were not a lot of Jews in the town. It may explain why Philippians is one of the few letters where Paul never quotes the Old Testament. He's writing to a bunch of Gentile believers more so than Jewish believers. This is also the same Philippi where Paul was thrown in jail. You remember the story that we've discussed of the Philippian jailer. Paul's in jail in Philippi. He and Barnabas are singing into the night. And uh, 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 I'm Silas, not Barnabas, excuse me. He and Silas are singing into the night. And in the process, there's an earthquake and the doors are opened and they're able to leave. But they don't. The Philippian jailer thinks they fled. He thinks his life's forfeit. So he's going to commit suicide. Paul says, stop. Don't commit suicide. We haven't left. We've got no reason to leave. We're in here worshiping the Lord. Doesn't matter if we do that out here or in there. I mean, in here or out there. So the Philippian jailer says, well, then I'd like to know about this. And Paul proceeds to explain to the Philippian jailer how Jesus Christ has changed his life and changed the world and changed history. And the Philippian jailer says, I'd like some of that. And so through the influence of Paul, God's Holy Spirit works in the Philippian jailer and all of his household come to Jesus and are baptized. And, and, and the jailer, he's probably part of the church that's getting this letter some 10 years later. And I just can't help but wonder if he didn't get a chuckle 
over the fact old Paul is in jail again. Writing to me. I bet he's converting some more jailers. Paul gave new meaning to a jail ministry. When we talk about a prison ministry or a jail ministry, we talk about going to the prisons to convert the inmates. For Paul, it was the averse. He, his prison ministry was going to prison to convert the jailers. And the jailer had to have some fun when he got Paul's letter and just inwardly chuckle along with his family. We also know that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was closely tied to the community at Philippi. Some scholars believe Luke was actually from Philippi. Whether he was from it or just closely tied to it, we know from the Acts narrative that Luke was evidently going back and forth between Troas and Philippi, joined Paul for the venture over to Philippi, stayed in Philippi when Paul left, picks back up with Paul and is the Philippian representative that goes to Jerusalem with the money for the church there toward the the late part of Acts. So uh, uh, Luke's closely associated with it. So Paul's got a lot of contacts there. He's got a lot of friends. He's got a lot of people that are important in his life there. It's a church that he feels very close to. It's a church that we can fairly read Acts to see Paul went back and visited. If we look at Paul's travel logs, it would show he not only started the church, but he went back a couple of years later and went back a couple of years later. A couple of years later, he might have tried to go back, but he couldn't because he got arrested in, in Jerusalem and then spent a couple of years there and then his journey to Rome. But... For the first go-round, at least every two years or so, Paul seemed to be going back and visiting the church. When you consider all of that, it's no surprise that this is a letter that that's a lot of scholars and commentators call the book of joy. The word joy is used 16 times. If I'm not mistaken, if you take the verb form, rejoicing, Paul uses it 21 times in just four chapters. That's a lot of joy. But if you think about his experience with these people and how much he loved them and how plugged in they were in his life and who all was there, you understand it. So with that, let's look at the letter briefly and try and follow what Paul had to say to them. Um, I have tried to keep this class in the English Standard Version. But I've got to warn you, most of Philippians is in my brain in the New American Standard Version. So if I... Uh, I'm quoting sections in my brain. It's going to come out probably some hybrid. So just do the best we can. All right. Paul begins it, the letter, uh, and he writes, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the elders and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God, our father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul says, I thank my God. In my every remembrance of you. Think about that. I thank my God. In my every remembrance of you. Always offering prayer. With joy. In my every prayer for you. When I pray for you. I pray for you with joy. In my every prayer for you. Why? In view of, as the New American Standard says, because in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. From the very beginning, you have participated in the gospel, not only in your own church, but as you've given me support. Financial support, prayer support, 
It's not any different than this class's participation in the gospel, both from the church's perspective and from this class perspective. When we look at the Internet and the web stats, I got to tell you, we wouldn't be doing that if y'all weren't here. And it's not that that Becky and I desire to have an Internet ministry. That's not it at all. We desire to minister here within this framework in this setting. It just might as well kill two birds with one stone and throw it up there. Originally, we threw it up there so those of you who weren't coming to class would have a chance to keep up. We never knew that hundreds of thousands of people might wind up downloading these things one day. But that's God's wisdom. To the extent you're a part of this class and you're part of this ministry structure and you're doing the things that that minister within this class, which include attending, if you pass the book by, (laughs) you are participating in the spread of the gospel. So Paul says, I thank my God in my every remembrance of you, always offering prayer for joy in my every prayer for you in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For of this very thing, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. God is not finished with any of us. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because we all need his help. I'm glad he's not finished with me. I would not want to live eternally like I am right now. I got some. In fact, he may have a list for me. I got my own list for him. Here are the things I'd like you to change in me. And Paul says he's confident that God started the good work. God's not a quitter. God's not going to quit halfway through his painting. He does not have ADD where our salvation is concerned. It's a good thing I'm not God. I'm really good at starting projects. Getting them across the finish line, that's a struggle. My view of the world is start a project, find good people, and give it to them. Not God's. He's going to bring to completion what he started in you. And what he started in me. And I thank him for that. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has turned out for the good. Now, here's where the Philippian jailer just starts laughing when this letter's read. He says, I want you to know that my imprisonment was for the good. Because here I am, stuck in prison... But everybody's hearing about the gospel, including all of the soldiers in the Praetorian Guard who are taking care of me. Paul says, my imprisonment was for the good because all of the guards are hearing about Jesus. And not only are all the guards hearing about Jesus, but the brethren are so encouraged that I'm able to preach while I'm in prison. The guards are hearing about Jesus. The guards are coming to know the Lord. It encourages all of them. So they're preaching more boldly as well. So Christ is being preached all over the place because of this. Oh, don't get me wrong, he says. Some are preaching Christ out of vanity, in essence. Self-worth. There are some even today, I dare say. Not in this church, thankfully. But there are some even today that preach, I think, almost because of how it makes them look. 
and they really like it. Those are people who tuck in their shirts. <laughs> no. <laughs> Paul, says, Paul says, but you know what? Even with that situation, I rejoice because even when it's not from the best motives, at least Christ is being lifted up. And that's the important thing. He says, so I don't know how long I'm in chains. In fact, I'm on death row, technically. Uh, uh, Ron, where's Ron? Ron was speaking last week to, in, in a jail ministry where he speaks. And he told me he taught Philippians. He had a much better introduction than I did, by the way. Paul taught Philippians, I mean, Ron taught Philippians. And Ron said, he went to the jailers and he said, I want to read you a letter that I've got from a death row inmate. Um, he's got a rap sheet as long as your arm. This fellow had been arrested everywhere he'd gone. Uh, his buddies had sent him some money into the commissary so he could buy some goods while he was there on death row. And he wrote him a thank you note. And I'd like to read it to you. Open your Bibles to Philippians. It's a pretty good introduction. Pretty good introduction. Paul says, I may wind up dying here, but I got to tell you, if I die, that's good. That's gain for me. To live is Christ. To die is gain. There's a paradox there. But while I'm living, I'm living for Christ. But if I die, it's all the better. I'm going home. I'm going to glory. I'm going to eternal fellowship with all of God's children. I live in eternal praise of our Heavenly Father. There's no more tears there's no more pain. There's no more sickness. Have a glorified body. When that day comes, I, I, I'm stepping up. While I'm here, though, I'm living for Christ. And while I'm here, I'm more useful to people around me. And convinced of this, I know I'm going to stay here. For a while longer. I thoroughly expect the cuffs will come off. And I'm, I thoroughly expect to be released. Now meanwhile. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to live in a manner. That's worthy of the gospel. I want you to live in a manner. Worthy of Jesus Christ dying for you. With all that that entails. The way you treat each other. Treat each other like you're part of the same family. Like you're redeemed. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come to you, like I hope to, or whether I just hear about you, I'm going to hear about all the wonderful things that you're doing. Focus on the unity that you have in Jesus. Everybody who draws closer to Jesus, by definition, draws closer to each other. If you're estranged from people, best thing you can do is draw closer to Jesus. You're straining in your marriage. Best thing you can do is draw closer to Jesus. By definition, if you draw closer to Jesus, you draw closer to each other. By the same token, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, you know why. I distinctly remember... Joe, you telling this story on a sermon. It was a Sunday night in Lubbock, Texas. I would have been in ninth grade, tenth grade. 
And Joe said, uh, uh, I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but in essence, it's this. A couple got out of a truck heading into the church. An older man and an older woman. This is back when they had bench seats in those trucks. Some still do. Bench seats. And the couple saw two high school kids getting out of a car that were dating. And the high school kids got out of the car and the guy got out first. He was driving and held his own door open for the girl to get out because she was nestled right up next to him the way we used to do with those bench seats. Remember? It's not that way now with bucket seats, but kids, when we were little, your girlfriend could sit next to you in the middle. You could put your arm around her while you drove. (laughs) Joe told this story and he said that couple, older couple, watched the younger couple get out and a lady elbowed her husband and said, how come we don't sit that close anymore? He looked at her and said, woman, I'm not the one who moved. Uh, I got to tell you, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, you don't you're not. He's not the one that moved away from you. So let's draw closer to God. When you're living, don't do anything. Paul says, here's the way he says it. Do nothing out of emptiness or self-conceit. Don't do anything out of selfishness. But in everything. Regard everybody else as better than yourselves. In humility, regard other people as more important. I want to pause for a minute here. Because this is, a, this is an area that, that we need to seriously ask the Lord where we are on this. I don't know where you are in your walk in life. But... You and I are not any better than any other human being on this earth. We're not. We're not. This is not. uh, Becky and I, we had dinner with a fella. And we were sitting there at dinner and I was asking him what it was like and how he was enjoying it. And this fella's family was very upset with him. I said, how can your family be upset? You're the... He said, they're upset because I'm trying to get education to all classes of people. And the ruling people believe that only the ruling people need to be educated. I said, what? He says, yeah, they said to me, you get those people educated and what are they going to want next? That was their mentality. They believe the rich should be rich and the poor should be poorer. The poor are there to serve the rich. And it's inherent in who people are. And you value people accordingly. That's not true. That's wrong. And we don't see it probably in that bold a fashion. But we need to be careful we don't see it in any fashion. That we regard other people as, as better than we regard ourselves. Because ultimately, we're here to serve other people. They're not here to serve us. Paul says it this way. He says, this is exactly how he says it in Philippians. He says, uh, um, have the same attitude 
you have the same attitude that was also in Christ Jesus. Then he breaks it down. He says, Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God. Greek word, morphe. He was in essence God. He existed in the form of God. He, Jesus was God. But he did, not recall, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, a servant, a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Now, that's a huge step down. I'm God. I'm creator. I, I, I will not regard my position as God something I have to hold on to. I'll empty myself and take the form of a created being. And the bizarre part is, is the step down in humility did not end there. God went further and he said, in being found in human, being found in, in, in flesh as a human, he then humbled himself to other humans. Now, it's one thing for God to say, I'll be a man. But for God to then say, and as a man, I'll a created being, I'll humiliate myself, or not humiliate, I will humble myself to other humans. And it wasn't just a little bit, Paul says. He did it to the point of death. And it wasn't just to the point of death. It was to death on a cross. The most shameful death of the time. Saved only for the worst of people. The descent of Christ out of humility. Paul said had a boomerang effect too. Because he says, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven, on earth and under the earth. And every tongue proclaim that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the father. How dare we be arrogant and proud and haughty with the people on this planet when God himself Dared never be so. And God did not come and just die for the rich and the middle class. Heavens, he didn't come and just die simply for the Americans. He created every human being on this earth and cares dearly for each soul. And so, Paul says, you be careful. And you work out your salvation. For God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What, what Paul's saying there is not work out your salvation in the sense of, uh, of uh, uh, work to get saved. He's not, not it's far from his mind. He's talking about working out what God's needing in. God's at work in you, so you let it go out. Okay, you let it flow out as God's putting it in. God is kneading into you his holiness and his goodness and his purity. Would you please express it in your life? God is kneading his humility into you. Would you please express it in his life in your life? God is kneading his love for other people into you. Would you please express it in your life? That's what Paul's saying. 
Then Paul digresses for a minute and talks about his plans. He says, look, I'm sending Timothy to you because I want you to know what's going on with me. I'm also sending Epaphroditus back to you. You sent him to me with some help. Thank you so much. He got really sick. He almost died. And instead of giving up, he still stayed here. And you've probably heard about it, but by the grace of God, so that I don't have misery upon misery, God's healed him. And I want to send him back to you so you're not worried. Epaphroditus probably took this letter with him. So I'm sending him back. And when you get him, you'll be happy. Read this letter. And oh, now a few other things. Look out for the dogs. I don't mean woof. I'm talking about the people who are enemies of the cross of Christ to some degree. These are the people who are the, the who, who think well, what we know about them is they were Judaizers, most likely. They were the ones who were trying to teach that you're saved based on being good Jews. And so they're coming in to the Gentile church, by and large, and trying to say to them, you all better learn how to be good Jews and learn how to get circumcised. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's wrong. And if somebody tries to hold on to you that they're better than you because they're living better. Oh, I can trump them. Paul says, I can outbrag anybody if that really matters. He says, I was born a Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means I can speak the language. I bet they can't. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That means I can trace my lineage all the way back to Benjamin. We haven't lost it. We didn't lose it in the dispersion. We didn't lose it in the great conquering of the temple and all of the temple records being burned. We've kept track of our heritage all the way back. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I've got all the Jewish credentials in the world. As to the law, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, perfect. You write, you hold up the, the, the law, which is the, the interpretation that the rabbis have given of the first five books. You take those several hundred commandments as they've written them. I haven't violated them. You know what? I count all of that as a big old pile of garbage compared to the value of knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified and the power of his resurrection. All of my best deeds aren't worth diddly squat. That's a Lubbock expression. It means a pile of garbage. They're not worth anything compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ and knowing who he is and knowing what he did for me. I'm not even telling you in that regard I'm perfect. Because I have not arrived yet, Paul says. But I'll tell you what I do. I forget what lies behind and I press on toward the goal of the upward calling of Jesus Christ. And I'm going forward. Oh, have I messed up? Absolutely. But there's a life in front of me. I hope my friend John Edwards hears this. But I hope all of us hear it. Because all of us have messed up. But for all of us who trust in Jesus Christ, there is a life in front of us. And that's what we need to be living for. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward the goal of the upward calling of Christ Jesus. Quote, unquote. 
And Paul says, that's where I am. And so just beware of these enemies of the cross. They're twofold. They're not just the ones who try and bind a religion on you and give you a system of works. They're also the ones who act like works don't matter at all. The ones whose God is their appetite. Who care more about what they eat and what they drink than they do what their life is about. As a ministry and as a service to others. Who are living self-indulgent lives. Feeding their own spirit. Instead of being concerned about how they live for other people. And what they do and and the, the image they are and the message they convey. He says, be careful, because that's not what Jesus wants. That's not the kind of life we're called to live. He says, now, two of you are having a hissy fit with each other. Yodia uh, and Syntyche, you both have been friends of mine. You've both helped me in my ministry. And why on earth y'all are fussing together against each other is, is beyond me. Stop it. Live in harmony. Get along. There is no cause for brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to be fighting with each other. Well, yes, there is. She was not nice to me. Well, aren't you glad Jesus doesn't have that attitude? Well, yes, but I've reworked it. Now it's not that she wasn't nice to me. It's that her doctrine is bad. Okay. Bad doctrine. You still treat her with love. I got news for you. I'm 47. I've been teaching Sunday school all my adult life. I've had bad doctrine for a lot of it. And I probably have bad doctrine right now. I just don't realize it. But it's my hope and prayer that God works in spite of my bad doctrine to help prod my brothers and sisters along in learning who he is. As uh, David Fleming told me yesterday at breakfast, he said... He was talking to a a dear friend of mine, one of my lawyers, uh, uh, who David had had a meal with. And that lawyer was saying, you know, what slide am I on? I'm on 45. I got five minutes. This story's good. I got to fit this one in. If I go over one minute, don't throw rocks, throw something soft. Um, My lawyer said I was born Jewish. I was brought up Jewish. I was very close to my dad. I'm on my, at my dad's hospital bed. My dad's dying. A rabbi comes in, a priest comes in, a nun comes in. He says the rabbi was cold, absolutely cold, offered nothing. The priest came in. He might have been lukewarm, but he pretty much was cold too. The nun came in, sat down on the bed, touched my dad, touched me, said, could I pray for you? He said, I walked out of that hospital feeling different because of the nun. The next day, I'm sitting outside my dad's room, and I'm, my head's down in my hands, and I'm crying because my dad's dying. And the nun comes up, and I realize it because I feel a touch on my shoulder, and I look up, and she says, I'm still praying for you and your dad. He said, I went home, and I told my mom, I'm Jewish, and I know I'm Jewish, but if I was ever going to change, I'd want to be Catholic because of that nun. He said, and my mom got violently upset, and I assured her it was just all hypothetical. He said, and then, fast forward a couple of years, I came, he said, I came down, and I was in this class, and he said, 
It was just like, it made the nun seem cold. And I went back and I didn't tell my mom, but I did tell my wife, okay, if I was ever going to change religions, I'd want to be whatever they are in that class. David Fleming's response. He said, do you see that everybody that you connected with was, was drawing a picture by their lives of how they understand God? And he said, if you had ten people draw a picture of your dad, you would get different people who knew your dad from different walks who would draw your dad differently because some might know your dad from work or some might know your dad from a social club or some might know your dad as a neighbor. But when you looked at those drawings, you'd know which is accurate and which is not because you knew your dad better than any of the others. You knew him as an intimate. You knew him as your father and you were his son. He said those different people drew different pictures of God. Please don't judge God based on the pictures they drew. Because that's what they drew based on their interactions and experiences with him. But he said, you will find some of them drew more accurate pictures. He said, we go to a church where the goal is not to be a member of the church. The goal is to know Jesus and God and know him intimately and have a relationship with him and be a son. And draw the clearest picture possible. When you put it into that perspective... Quit fussing over things that you don't need to fuss about. And if you do need to fuss over something, do it in a godly way. And rejoice in God always. When you're worried, Paul says it this way, be worried in nothing. The English Standard Version uses the word anxious, but I don't like that because anxious to us means uh, antsy. He doesn't mean antsy. He means worried. Anxious in the sense of anxiety. Be worried in nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds with Christ Jesus. Now, here's a twist Paul uses on this phrase. He's got that phrase, and then he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, the things you've seen and heard or seen and received and learned from me and, and, and the examples, think about these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Many of us want the peace of God, but we're not too interested in the God of peace. The peace of God, prayer, closeness, intimacy, the God of peace, holiness, devotion, they all go together. And that's what we need to be about. Paul, before he closes, says, I've got to say thank you. Thank you. He says, you know, don't get me wrong. I've learned the secret of having lots of money. I've learned the secret of not having any money. I've learned to be content regardless. My contentment doesn't come from what I've got. Like Pastor Fleming said, my contentment comes from confidence in God. And what God supplies. See, all I want to be is a tool for him. And that's what you are. You're his tool. When you let him use you to minister, you're his tool. So thank you. Then he kind of closes with bye. See ya. Oh, and those from Caesar's household say bye to. Points for home.
To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the way it is. That's our faith. That's our hope. And that's our confidence. Let's keep that eternal perspective. Point for home two. Have the same attitude. Have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who even though he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Have that same attitude. Jesus was humble. How dare we be arrogant? Jesus thought every human being worth every drop of his blood. How dare we think there's a human being worth any less from us. And don't be worried about anything. Instead, put it before God. Prayer and supplication. Knowing, with thanksgiving. Knowing that God cares. And will take perfect care of us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. And we thank you. For your love. Your love that's taken care of us eternally. Your love that's called us by name. Your love that's secured for us through the Holy Spirit. Your word for all eternity. We thank you for the ways that you teach us. We thank you for the ways you guide us. We thank you for the ways you hold us. It is my prayer that everyone who hears this message will find you in a deeper, more significant way in their life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.